1: When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's You Know What. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta. Delivering the same warmth to your home, now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See sertaireland.ie
2: Alan Legere believed that the community he was raised in was responsible for how his life turned out. When he was convicted of murder in the late 80s, he believed that too was the community's fault. So he broke out of prison and began terrorizing them. This is Monsters. Today there's a city in eastern New Brunswick called Miramichi, but in the 80s the Miramichi River Valley was just the area which was made up of multiple towns. The towns Chatham and Newcastle eventually came together to form the city of Miramichi. Alan Legere was born on February 13, 1948 in Chatham, New Brunswick, Canada, in the Miramichi River Valley. Alan's mother, Louise Legere, was a single woman who rented out a room in her house in order to make extra money. Alan's father was one of the lodgers and he left early on in the boy's life. Alan also had a younger brother by the same father. The other children at school made fun of the Legere brothers for not having a father and they became outcasts, relying on each other for companionship. This made Alan resent the local community. His mother tried to talk him out of his negative feelings, but over time his resentment turned to anger. Not long after he graduated from school, his younger brother was hit by a truck and killed while walking over a bridge. This event destroyed Louise and she began to turn on her other son. She told him that she wished that it was him that had been killed instead of his brother. By then, Alan believed that the entire Miramichi community had failed him, including his own mother. Alan decided to move to Winchester, which is about 10 hours west and near Ottawa. He got a job selling cars and could have spent the rest of his life being a productive member of society, but Alan just couldn't get over the way he was treated while he was growing up. Unfortunately, Alan's beliefs about society made him an unattractive companion and he spent most of his time alone. This only compounded his beliefs that he wasn't good enough. In his 20s, Alan began stealing from people as a way to rebel against society. He would break into homes and steal cash and valuables. Sometimes he would get caught, which would result in an ass-kicking, but he continued to burglarize people and he gradually got better at it. This boosted his self-confidence, which triggered him to start going to the gym and working out. He was focused on not seeming weak to other people. He bulked up and became an intimidating character. Now, when he got caught stealing, it was him that did the ass-kicking. By the time Alan was 37 years old, he decided he was tired of the car dealership. He was never able to move up from being an average salesman and was tired of his co-workers making fun of him. He quit his job and moved to an area in the Miramichi Valley called Black River Bridge about 20 minutes east of Chatham. John Glendenning and his wife, Mary, owned a small general store in Black River Bridge and they lived on the second floor. John would get up early to open the store and then spend the day chatting with the local residents who stopped in. One of those regular visitors was Allen. When Alan noticed a safe in the store, he became much more interested in getting to know the 66-year-old man. It turned out that John wasn't keeping his life savings in the bank. He was keeping it in the safe. Alan saw an easy way to bring in some money. All he needed to do was break in at night and steal the whole safe. Then he could take it somewhere else and work on opening it. See, this is why you always bolt down your safe. Alan knew he couldn't handle the job alone, so he spent some time looking for a couple of guys that could help him steal the safe. When he met 18-year-old Tom Matchett and 19-year-old Scott Curtis, he knew he had his crew. The pair had already racked up years of petty theft experience as teenagers, and he worked out a deal for them to help with the job in exchange for a cut of the money. On June 21st, 1986, Alan, Todd, and Scott broke into the shop where they went to the fuse box and shut off the power. They made their way to the safe, but when they got to its location, it was gone. Alan didn't know that John had moved the safe upstairs. They changed their plan on the fly and went upstairs to retrieve their prize. When they got to the top of the stairs, John and Mary were awake and the three burglars proceeded to severely beat the man before moving on to his wife. When they were done beating her, they dragged her downstairs and all took turns raping her. For some reason, the men decided that they shouldn't take the safe after beating the couple and fled the scene, leaving Mr. and Mrs. Glendening for dead. But Mary didn't die. She crawled back up the stairs and called 911. When police arrived, she described her attackers and was taken to the hospital where she survived her injuries. John, on the other hand, did not. Police were able to find the three perpetrators pretty easily due to Mary's identification and evidence left behind by the attackers. When they went to trial, Todd and Scott both pointed to Allen as the mastermind of the plan. On January 22, 1987, Allen Legere was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 18 years. All three men were actually convicted of the same crime. Allen never seemed to deny that he was the one that planned out the robbery, but he still thought he shouldn't be in prison. He would end up filing two unsuccessful appeals. When he believed you wouldn't be able to secure freedom that way, he moved on to planning a prison escape. There are different accounts of what Allen did in order to cause an infection. One says that he hit his left ear until it became injured and waited for it to become infected. Another says that he poured urine into his left ear, which caused an infection. It's possible he did both, but either way, when he brought the infection to the attention of the prison guards, they took him on a trip to the University Hospital in Mockton on May 3rd, 1989. While preparing for his escape, Ellen made a makeshift handcuff key out of everyday items. He had hidden it inside a cigar, which apparently inmates were allowed to have on them at the time. It was the 80s. He also broke off the telescoping antenna from his television and hid it inside his rectum. Once at the hospital, he was escorted inside by two guards.
1: Pop quiz. What can you buy for
2: $3.99? Once inside, Alan asked to use the bathroom. Alan had been a model inmate in prison. He caused no problems and had built up a rapport with the guards. But it was all an act for exactly this reason. They felt comfortable enough with him that, while leaving his handcuffs on, they allowed him to use the bathroom by himself. Once inside, he used the key to unlock his handcuffs and leg restraints, but wasn't able to remove the chain around his waist. Then, he retrieved the TV antenna. Ugh. When he exited the bathroom, he waved the antenna around at them, and some accounts say the guards were unarmed, and the others say they didn't go for their guns because they were threatened by the quote-unquote weapon. Whether they're armed or not, I can't understand why they let this violent man go. I'm lucky enough to report that I've never been hit with a TV antenna, and as much as I'm sure it hurts, I can't imagine believing it could do enough damage that it would make a prison guard let a violent inmate walk free. Maybe he sharpened the metal and threatened to stab them? It's impossible to know exactly what happened, but two guards against a man with a TV antenna seems like it should have favored the prison guards. Whatever happened, the guards let Alan go, and when he got outside, he carjacked a woman named Peggy Olive. He drove her down the road a ways and let her out unharmed. Then he drove the car further away and ditched it. The police chased Allen, but he had a head start and kept changing vehicles. He would ditch one car and then steal another. People kept reporting that a man with a beard would pull them out of their car and drive away. Alan didn't waste any time getting right back to committing crime. On May 7th, he attacked a man named Max Ramsey. He beat the man, tied him up, then took his wallet and car. His car was later found in a neighboring town with his wallet inside, most likely emptied of its cash. On May 10th, Mary Gregan saw someone suspicious outside her window and called the police. By the time they got there, the man was gone, but four days later, she realized that jewelry was missing from her home. On May 16th, a man named Joe Irving reported to police that he had seen Alan Legere in a field. On the 27th, someone broke into his house and stole a duffel bag, a pie, and $100 worth of frozen meat. Just down the road from Joe Irving and Chatham, Annie Flam owned a general store and lived in the adjoining house with her sister-in-law, Nina Flam. 75-year-old Annie had lived in the area her whole life, and everyone knew who she was. Her store was a common stop for everyone who lived in the area. On May 29th, Alan broke into the shop and demanded money from Annie. He then beat Annie with a blunt object, breaking her jaw, and it's believed that he sexually assaulted her. During the struggle, he knocked over a lamp which woke up Nina in the other room. When she got up to check out what the noise was, Alan grabbed her and proceeded to rape and strangle her until he thought she was dead. It turned out that she had only pretended to die, which would ultimately save her life. Alan believed that both women were dead, so in an effort to cover his tracks, he set the house on fire. Once Nina saw the fire, he tried to run out of the house, but Alan was still there and he pushed her back into the house. She managed to crawl down the stairs and call 911 from the phone in the store. Early that morning, a local man named Harry Preston was driving by the store when he saw smoke. He got out and pounded on the door, but got no response. When officers arrived on the scene, they broke down the back door and pulled Nina from the burning building. Annie was later recovered from the remains of her home. An autopsy would reveal that she had died of blunt force trauma to the head before the fire was even set. Nina suffered second and third degree burns on 70% of her body. Nina was able to tell the police that the attacker had a chain around his waist. This led authorities to believe that the man they were looking for had recently broken out of prison. The handcuffs were easy enough to remove, but it looked like they weren't able to remove the chain that went around their waist that connected the shackles. Nina also told police that Allen was enraged and yelling about how society had done him wrong and that he was going to get back at everyone for what they had done to him. Brothers David and John Tanazishuk had escaped from prison on May 22nd, just days before the attack on the Flam sisters, but they were quickly located and eliminated as suspects. That left Alan Legere as their only possible lead. This violent attack made the whole area fear for their lives. They knew that Alan could show up at any time and beat or kill anyone. He didn't have a specific target. He was mad at the community as a whole. People stayed inside at night. Businesses closed early. People started installing lights all over the place to light up their homes and businesses all night long to try to deter Alan from choosing that location as a target they would eventually start calling them Legere Lights. On June 1st, Joe Irving saw a man trying to break into his garage and ended up chasing him through multiple yards before losing him. The next day, a landscaper found a pair of men's glasses near some lumber where a deck was being built in the same area that Joe had chased the man he saw. He gave them to police, who later confirmed that they were the same prescription and style that Allen had been wearing when he escaped from prison. Though the residents of the Miramichi River Valley feared that they would be murdered by the serial killer that was stalking their community, Allen was also committing burglaries and car thefts. Anytime Allen had to get from one place to another, he would jack a car, ditch it, jack another car, ditch it, and so on. That way the police never knew exactly what car he was in. On September 30th, a man named Morrissey Doran was shot in the back with a shotgun by a man demanding money. The following day, Edwin and Evangeline Russell were attacked in their home. Both attacks were believed to be the work of Allen, as both homes were close to the Newcastle police station and authorities knew that Allen was brazen enough to attack people that close to the police. While police were at Russell's house, they got a call that someone was trying to break into another house two miles away. The whole time that Allen was a fugitive, terrorizing the area, his second appeal was being considered by the Supreme Court of Canada. At the beginning of October, they announced that they couldn't provide a ruling while the accused was at large. During this time, Allen actually thought he had a chance of appeal. He had escaped from prison and was currently a fugitive who was committing more crimes and he thought the Supreme Court would appeal his conviction. This was the level of delusion that Allen lived under. He believed that it was the community's fault that he had been put in prison in the first place, and now that he heard his appeal was denied, he felt that he needed to retaliate. On October 13th, Alan went to the back door of sisters Donna and Linda Donnie and partially unscrewed the light bulb so the light went out. He disconnected the phone line so the residents wouldn't be able to call for help. He picked the lock on the back door and went into the house where he tied Linda to a chair and made her watch as he beat and raped Donna. When he was done with the first sister, he killed her and moved on to the younger sister. He beat and raped Linda before killing her as well. Like before, he set the house on fire and disappeared from the scene. The following morning, a volunteer firefighter saw smoke coming from the Donny residence, so he raced to the station, notified the other firefighters, and put on his gear. Before the fire was even out, rescuers went into the burning house to search for the sisters. They were able to find the bodies of Donna and Linda. One of them was tucked tight into her bed, but it was too late. The women were already dead, and it wasn't from the fire. When the fire was put out, investigators began collecting evidence. Though the Miramichi River Valley was a small area and not very well known, this crime would become the first murder case in Canadian history to use DNA testing. Investigators collected fingerprints, hair, and semen from the scene, and Allen's DNA was taken from a knife that was used to stab him while he was in prison, and from a wart that was removed from him by a prison doctor. Since there were no witnesses, authorities needed something else to prove that Alan Legere had committed this crime and when the DNA came back to match, they knew they had their man. Just days later, the wife of Fred Ferguson, the Crown prosecutor, reported that she received a phone call from a man who said, quote, you're next, end quote. The entire community called off Halloween and planned private parties instead.
1: when you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See certaireland.ie.
2: On October 28th, a truck that was parked outside of a local motel was broken into and the owner reported that two guns were stolen. Later that same night, a resident saw a man that matched Allen's description and noticed that his truck had a window broken. When police arrived, they used a canine to track the man. They got close to the assailant, but shots were fired and they lost track of him. Early the next morning, another resident saw a man with two rifles standing in his front yard. As soon as the unknown man saw the resident in the window, he turned and walked into the woods. To make matters worse, it turned out that Allen was not the only person terrorizing the residents of the Miramichi River Valley. On November 15th, police announced that they had arrested 30-year-old Allard Joseph Venu for the attacks on Morrissey Doran and Edwin and Evangeline Russell. Police hoped that this would alleviate some of the pressure they were under, but it wouldn't be even 24 hours before Allen would take another life. Father James Smith was the priest for the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Roman Catholic Church in the Chatham area. He was well known for maintaining the Nativity scene in town during Christmas time, which made sense given the church's name. He lived on the church property in the rectory. On November 15th, he had visited the local hospital before going back to the rectory and eating dinner. Someone said they saw Father Smith on his patio looking around after saying he thought he heard something, but when he didn't find anything, he went back inside. Later that night, Allen broke into the rectory and killed Father Smith. He stayed there through the night, and the next day he ate, he washed his boots, he put plastic bags on them to keep them dry, then he changed his clothes and put the bloody ones into a bag. He even answered the phone and told the caller that they got the wrong number. When he was ready to leave, he hot-wired Father Smith's 1984 Oldsmobile Delta 88 and drove away. Father Smith was supposed to hold service that evening, but by 7 o'clock, people began to grow concerned. They noticed that it was all dark in the rectory, so one of the parishioners checked inside and he came back out yelling for someone to call the police. It turned out that Father Smith had been tortured before he was killed. His rib cage on each side of his body was separated from his sternum and it looked as though someone had jumped up and down on his chest with great force. He had a cut on his chest, a broken jaw, his eyes had been gouged out, someone had tried to rip his tongue out of his mouth. Three teeth were broken and his throat had been slashed. There were hairs and bloody footprints collected from the scene. The hairs were a match to Allen, and when they realized that Father Smith's car was missing, they tracked it to a train station about 55 miles or 90 kilometers away. A cashier at the train station said that a man that matched Allen's description had purchased a ticket to Montreal. Quebec police were notified that Allen was likely on the train and they were told that he had a tattoo of an eagle on his right arm. With a description in hand, they boarded the train at one of the stops and began looking over the passengers. They found a man who fit the description, though he was thinner and he identified himself as Fernand Savoy. They asked him to pull up his right sleeve and when they didn't see a tattoo, they moved on. In reality, Fernand Savoy was in fact Alan Legere. He had lost weight since he had escaped prison and the tattoo of the eagle was on his left arm, not his right. The information given to Quebec police was incorrect. Over the next few weeks, Allen stayed at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel and pawned jewelry he had stolen from the Donnie sisters. A couple of diamonds, a gold chain, a pendant, and some rings. He got $450. On November 23rd, Allen forced a cab driver at gunpoint to take him to the town of Moncton, which was south of the Miramichi River Valley. Due to the snow and ice, the cabby lost control of the car and crashed into a snow embankment. After a while, they were picked up by a woman who offered them a ride. He showed her his gun and told her to take them to Mockden, but they eventually needed to stop for gas. At the Four Corners Irving gas station and convenience, Alan took the keys from the ignition and got out of the car to fill the tank. When he was done, the woman used a spare set of keys she kept in the car to drive off and leave Alan behind. She drove to a nearby RCMP station and reported the incident. By the time the police arrived at the gas station, Alan was gone. They continued to get closer and closer to the fugitive, but he kept slipping through their grasp. Alan had forced a truck driver at a nearby truck stop to take him to Moncton. After they got there, Alan then told the driver, Brian Golding, to take him to the airport in Chatham and they needed to arrive right at 6am so he could get directly on a flight without waiting around. He claimed that he was going to fly to Iran. On the way to Chatham, Allen told Brian to use some backroads, probably thinking that it would keep them from being seen by police, but it actually alerted another truck driver who knew the backroads weren't normally used by large trucks. He notified the police with his CB radio, and when they caught up to the truck and attempted to pull it over, Brian just kept on driving on the orders of Alan. Eventually, Allen let Brian pull over, and the scared truck driver jumped out of the cab, yelling to the police that Allen was armed. When officers, armed with M16 rifles, approached each side of the truck and ordered Alan to exit with his hands up, he immediately threw the guns out the window and complied with the orders. Alan Legere loved to create fear in the community that he blamed for ruining his life, attacking older people that had little chance of fighting back. But when he was approached by young, strong, well-armed people, he tucked his tail between his legs and surrendered pretty quickly. He had an internal struggle with feelings of inadequacy, and I think it's because he knew he wasn't really as tough as he wanted people to believe. Allen was immediately charged with escaping lawful custody and kidnapping for carjacking Peggy Olive. He pleaded not guilty to both charges, and surprise, surprise, he was found guilty. I mean, the fact that he was outside of the prison when he should have been inside of the prison was really all the evidence they needed on that one. After that trial, he was then charged with four counts of first-degree murder. After over a year of delays, Allen was finally put on trial at the end of August of 1991. After presenting all of the DNA that Allen had left behind at the crime scenes, there was no doubt in the jury's mind. On November 3rd, Allen Legere was found guilty on all four charges. This was the first case in Canada where DNA was accepted as admissible in court. Allen believed that he had left no trace behind that would allow authorities to prove he had committed the murders, but he didn't know about DNA. It's a time period that's always fascinated me because criminals are leaving evidence behind, but as far as they know, it doesn't even exist. The idea that a rapist could be identified by their semen or a murderer could be identified by their own blood wasn't even a thought at the time. I'd love to go back in time and sit in on the trials where the criminal is having his DNA presented in court. I'd love to see the look on their faces. Authorities knew that Allen would not sit idle in prison and fully expected him to try to escape again. When he got back to prison, he asked if he could have his TV back, but a suspicious guard decided to check the TV out first. When they opened the housing, they found three more makeshift handcuff keys. Not long after, it was discovered that Allen was going to attempt to take a female guard hostage, but his plan was thwarted. Fortunately, due to upgrades in security, Allen has not been able to escape prison again. In 2015, Allen was transferred to a maximum security prison in Edmonton, Alberta, almost on the other side of the country. In 2020, Allen put in a request for day parole, but it was denied. He also had a parole hearing in January of 2021 where he stated that he doesn't understand why the community can't forgive him and told the parole board that he didn't consider himself a violent person. Needless to say, his parole was denied. Alan Legere is currently 73 years old and is unlikely to ever be released from prison. He will die there. There's good reason for that and it's the same reason he's called the monster of the Miramichi. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and we'll talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe.
1: Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's You Know What. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating, Emo, Jones Oil, and Campus Oil are now CERTA, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie.
0: There's nothing like getting a card or parcel in the post. So send from the heart and get 20 Christmas stamps for just €20 from onpust.com or your local post office. And don't forget, the last day for posting letters and cards to Europe is Monday, December
1: 19th. Onpust for your world. For more information, see onpust.com slash Christmas.